A few things to note up front about these guidelines. Number one is that in all age groups, lifestyle therapy is the primary intervention. Okay, this cannot be overemphasized enough. Of course, we are huge fans of lifestyle intervention, but these things should really be done in every single patient up front. Now, second, these guidelines really emphasis, emphasize the importance of risk discussions between patients and their physicians, weighing the patient's unique risk factors and their potential to benefit from statin medications, as well as the potential harms before actually starting that medication. Again, we can't emphasize the importance of these risk discussions enough either. Gone are the days of paternalistic medicine where you go to your doctor and they say, hey, your cholesterol is high, start this statin medication, and you say, okay. So now there's a lot more shared decision-making happening, and it's really important to have these discussions because your values are important too. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché-Arcuyo, family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, my husband, Dr. Danny, and I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is one of our pursuing health pearls. In medicine, we refer to clinical pearls as small bits of freestanding information relevant to clinical practice, usually based on experience. Pursuing health pearls are short 10 to 15 minute episodes in which Danny and I offer you succinct high yield info on common health conditions, spanning both conventional and alternative approaches. We do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. With that, let's get started with this week's episode. You may have noticed that we've moved away from having sponsors on the podcast. This was an intentional decision and one that Danny and I thought long and hard about. As we begin our careers as family physicians, we feel very strongly about our responsibility to remain as unbiased as possible in order to foster trust with our community and our future patients. Therefore, we've made the decision not to accept any sponsorship or endorsement compensation from industry from this point forward. That being said, in order to continue to produce great content for you here and on our new website, pursuing-health.com, we've created a subscription model. Almost all of the podcast content will remain completely free, but we will offer some additional benefits for subscribers with the goal of getting back far more than you give. For less than the cost of a latte each month, subscribers will benefit from exclusive discount codes. We want you to continue to benefit from our unfiltered opinion about products and services on the market without you wondering whether we're receiving compensation behind the scenes. So, rather than receiving endorsement or sponsorship compensation from companies ourselves, We're asking that those companies that we love, trust, and use ourselves provide an exclusive discount code to our subscribers. This will allow companies to pass along the value of our endorsement to you all without you having to wonder whether we're talking about them just because we're getting paid. We already have a great lineup of discounts and will only continue to add to this list as time goes on. It is our hope that if you use even one or two of these codes, your subscription should pay for itself. Subscribers will also benefit from the opportunity to contribute questions and listen to periodic exclusive Ask Us Anything podcast episodes with both Danny and I. Finally, subscribers will gain access to our morning five sessions, five-minute movement sessions created to jumpstart your day as well as our other online training programs, depending on your monthly contribution. In addition to our longstanding Train with Julie Fouché program designed for more experienced athletes, we've also created Train for Life a 30-minute, five-day-per-week program that can be done with minimal equipment at home or on the go. 
So if you listen to Pursuing Health and have found the podcast to have positively impacted your life in some way, it would mean a lot to us if you would consider subscribing at pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe. Again, that's pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe. Welcome back to Pursuing Health Pearls. Welcome back, everyone. So in this edition, we wanted to address a question that we hear all the time, which is, my doctor wants to start me on a statin for my high cholesterol. Is that a good idea? Now, ultimately, this is not a question that we can answer for you, as it's a very individual decision. And we do not give medical advice here on the podcast. But as we'll talk about today, it comes down to a conversation between the patient and their doctor. And what we're hoping to do today is to really demystify this topic of cholesterol and statins a little bit so that you can better understand the guidelines that doctors are working with when it comes to deciding which patients may benefit from statin medications and also the risks and the benefits of being on these medications so that you can come to a conversation with your personal physician more informed and better able to make the best decision for you. So before we dive further into the episode, let's talk about the hypothesis that all this is based on, the lipid hypothesis. And this idea is that, the, that high cholesterol increases your heart disease risk, and lowering your cholesterol, specifically a type of cholesterol called LDL, reduces your heart disease risk. Statins are a commonly prescribed medication that we'll cover in a moment, and lowering LDL cholesterol through statins is thought to lower heart disease risk according to this hypothesis. However, this hypothesis is highly debated because there are inconsistencies in the clinical trial data. There's also conflicts of interest among members who develop guidelines and review guidelines. So for the purpose of this podcast, we are not going to address this topic of the validity of the lipid hypothesis. We want to make that clear. What we're doing here is simply reviewing the current guidelines for using statin medications to prevent cardiovascular disease. But it is worth noting, as Danny said, that not everyone's on the same page with that hypothesis to begin with. So before we dive into the guidelines, Danny, can you tell us a little bit about what cholesterol is and what role it plays in our body? Sure. Cholesterol has gotten a bad rap in the media over the years, and we used to think that decreasing our consumption of cholesterol lowers our blood cholesterol, but this isn't necessarily true. Regardless, cholesterol is essential for life, and it's made by virtually all cells in the body. It's the structural component for cell membranes, the things that surround our cells. It's the precursor for steroid hormones, things like cortisol, testosterone, estrogen, and even vitamin D. Now, cholesterol is really important for all the cells in the body, but particularly for the brain, so much so that 20% of the cholesterol in the body is housed in the brain. Now, the brain doesn't have access to cholesterol from the circulation, it has to make all of its own, but the other organs in the body get some of their cholesterol from the circulation. And they get it through transport molecules, big, big structures called lipoproteins that are made primarily of fat and protein. And these have names that you probably have heard of before. They're called LDL. HDL, we'll go through each of these. So LDL is the low-density lipoprotein. It's the proverbial bad cholesterol. HDL is the proverbial good cholesterol, high-density lipoprotein. VLDL is another type of lipoprotein, very low-density lipoprotein, and there's another class called chylomicrons. And it's LDL, HDL, total cholesterol, and triglycerides that are typically measured in a traditional cholesterol panel that your physician might draw in the office. So what they're measuring is actually the amount of these apolipoproteins that are circulating around in your blood. And that's that marker of cholesterol. Precisely. So now that we know what cholesterol is, what exactly do the statin medications do that we're going to talk about? 
Yeah. So statins are a class of medications that are used to lower cholesterol levels, and they primarily act to lower that LDL or bad cholesterol that Danny just talked about. And they do this in two different ways. So the first is that they block an enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase, which is an, is an enzyme that's important for synthesizing or producing cholesterol in the body. So when this enzyme is blocked, the body can't produce as much cholesterol. Now, the second way that they do this is they promote the liver to absorb more LDL particles so there's less of them circulating around in the blood. We also have observed that statins seem to have this anti-inflammatory effect, which is separate from their LDL lowering effect and not fully understood, but it is something that we see in patients who are taking statin medications. Now, there are several different types of statin medications, each which has slightly different properties. And depending on the statin that's used and the dose, they have the potential to lower that LDL cholesterol by different degrees. So you can have low, moderate, or high-intensity statins depending on the degree to which they have been shown to lower that LDL. Now, just to give you an idea of how widely these medications are prescribed, we can look at the most commonly prescribed statin, which is atorvastatin or Lipitor. This is regularly one of the most prescribed medications in the U.S., and in 2017, it was the second most commonly prescribed medication in an outpatient setting with a total of 104 million prescriptions. Wow, mind-blowing. A lot of prescriptions. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the global market for all statins was valued at $19.3 billion in 2016, so that's nothing to scoff at. It's a huge market. All right. So now that we have some background about what cholesterol is and what statins do, let's start diving into the guidelines. How are doctors making decisions about when to prescribe these medications? So different guidelines affect or address different individuals. And we need to talk specifically about what group of individuals we're going to be talking about with these guidelines. Specifically, the guidelines that we'll cover will primarily focus at primary prevention. And that means a very select group of people. These are individuals who do not have heart disease, have not had a stroke, they don't have peripheral artery disease. And the intent of these guidelines and the recommendations that these guidelines contain are meant to prevent those conditions from occurring in the first place. Now, if somebody has these conditions like heart disease, stroke, peripheral artery disease, and they're taking these medications like statins, that would be secondary prevention. We're trying to keep the disease from getting worse. Yeah. So just to reiterate, anyone who's already had any form of heart disease or vascular disease, so maybe they've had a heart attack, maybe they have a stent, they've had cardiac bypass surgery, a stroke in the past, peripheral artery disease, these all fall under the category of secondary prevention. And that is separate from what we're talking about today. So these guidelines we're going to talk about today would not apply to those individuals. Exactly. All right. So before we jump in, let's just talk about the role of guidelines overall. So guidelines are put out by different professional organizations in order to synthesize what's currently known in the research and provide some framework for physicians to treat certain conditions in an evidence-based and consistent way. So depending on the topic of interest, there may be several organizations who put out guideline recommendations and they don't always agree 100%. So it is important to remember that these guidelines are guidelines, okay? They're not rules. They're not laws. They're intended to define practices that meet the needs of patients in most circumstances. But again, they're not going to meet the needs in all circumstances. They do not replace clinical judgment. And really, it emphasizes, again, the importance of looking at the individual patient and their discussion with their doctor. Today, we'll be talking mainly about the guidelines put up at put out by the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association in 2018 for managing blood cholesterol. These are definitely the most widely used guidelines uh, for managing cholesterol, and they were put together by an expert panel of cardiologists after reviewing the available evidence at the time. 
We're also going to review the recommendations from the United States Preventative Services Task Force, which is an independent volunteer panel of national experts in prevention and evidence-based medicine. And the United States Preventative Task Force makes recommendations of all types for preventative services, not just um, lowering cholesterol and decreasing cardiovascular risk. They look at things like breast cancer screening, cervical cancer screening, colon cancer screening, and other similar screening um, practices. Because they're an independent organization, they're generally thought to be less influenced by industry than specialty organizations like the American Heart Association or the American College of Cardiology. It's also important to note that these guidelines change frequently. Just since Julie and I have started medical school, we've been through two different updates on cholesterol guidelines. And because these change, perhaps if you haven't seen your doctor in the last five to 10 years, what they said back then may, may be a little bit out of date. In general, most healthy adults should have a discussion with their doctors about their cardiovascular risk about every four to six years. So with that, let's dive into these AHA ACC guidelines. All right. So one thing that's really nice about these guidelines is that they come with a very easy to follow flowchart. And we've included a copy of that flowchart in our show notes over on pursuing-health.com. So make sure you check that out and you can follow along there. And we're going to talk through that flowchart here. So again, just to reiterate, we're only going to be talking about managing cholesterol in individuals for primary prevention, meaning they don't have any evidence of cardiovascular disease. A few things to note up front about these guidelines. Number one is that in all age groups, lifestyle therapy is the primary intervention. Okay, this cannot be overemphasized enough. Of course, we are huge fans of lifestyle intervention, but these things should really be done in every single patient up front. Now, second, these guidelines really emphasis, emphasize the importance of risk discussions between patients and their physicians, weighing the patient's unique risk factors and their potential to benefit from statin medications, as well as the potential harms before actually starting that medication. Again, we can't emphasize the importance of these risk discussions enough either. Gone are the days of paternalistic medicine where you go to your doctor and they say, hey, your cholesterol is high, start this statin medication, and you say, okay. So now there's a lot more shared decision-making happening, and it's really important to have these discussions because your values are important too. So there are some tools that can be used to guide these discussions that we'll talk about, and the importance of these discussions and shared decision-making, again, really can't be overstated. So we hope you take that away from this episode. Mm -hmm. All right, so now we'll dive into the flowchart. It really splits people into different categories based on age. So we'll go through each of the age groups one by one. Now, the only situation that's independent of age is that of a very high LDL cholesterol greater than 190. So in this group, statins are generally recommended. These patients should be evaluated for a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia, which is a genetically elevated LDL that could put them at higher risk of heart disease. Again, this is sort of a separate topic. We're not going to get into too much detail here about this condition um, as it's another topic in and of itself. But it is interesting to note that there have been no randomized placebo-controlled trials of statin therapy done exclusively in patients with LDL cholesterol greater than 190, so exclusively in this group. These patients tend to be lumped into the whole group of, of patients with primary prevention with all varying levels of cholesterol elevation. So that is definitely an area for future research. So now that we've got that scenario out of the way, we can break things down by age. So we'll start with our younger individuals, the 0 to 19 and 20 to 39 age groups. So starting with folks who are 0 to 19 years old, there's really no evidence that evaluates the cardiovascular disease benefits of checking cholesterol for screening purposes or checking a cholesterol in the office for someone who doesn't have um, a family history for high cholesterol. However, 
If you have a very strong family history of early cardiovascular disease or very, very high cholesterol, it may make sense to check a cholesterol level in those very young individuals. But if it is high, you're still going to recommend lifestyle interventions first. Now, age 20 to 39, just like in the younger age group, again, the focus is lifestyle. But if you do have a family history of higher cholesterol, you have a higher cholesterol in you, the individual, it may make sense for your physician to undergo additional investigations to find the root cause for that elevated cholesterol. Again, there are no long-term randomized controlled trials with cholesterol-lowering drugs that have been carried out in the 20 to 39 age group. So we're really just extrapolating data from other age groups, which again is not ideal, mm-hmm. um, but it is what we have. Right. All right. So now we'll note, go on to our next age group, which is really where the bulk of these recommendations are focused. And that's our 40 to 75 year old. So in this age group, there are a few different decision points we have to make. Number one, we already addressed a minute ago, and that's our LDL greater than 190. So that's that separate category. Another is in those 40 to 75 who have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So in these individuals, a moderate intensity statin is recommended, potentially even a higher intensity statin, depending on their other risk factors. But again, it is important to note that for both diagnoses of diabetes and high cholesterol, lifestyle should be the first line recommendation. So if this is a new diagnosis, lifestyle changes should be implemented first to potentially reverse the diabetes, which would then remove the patient from this mm-hmm. category. So now in all other patients, 40 to 75, who don't have LDL greater than 190 and who don't have a type 2 diabetes diagnosis, the decision to start a statin medication is based on a risk discussion between the patient and their doctor. And there's several things that need to be discussed in this conversation. The first is your 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease or, or stroke or heart attack over the next 10 years using a validated risk calculator, which we'll go into detail in a moment here. We're going to talk about the presence of things called risk enhancers, which increase your risk of having uh, cardiovascular disease. We'll talk about the potential benefits of lifestyle and statins, the potential adverse effects of taking the statins, but also drug-drug interactions. We'll talk about the cost of these medications. Um, and you know, we should note that someone has to pay for these things, mm-hmm. either you or your insurance company. And then, of course, the single most important thing I would say is patient preferences. Absolutely. Bringing those patient preferences and their values into this process of shared decision making. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first step, Danny just mentioned a lot of factors that have to be considered in these risk discussions. So we're going to go through them one by one. The first step in evaluating a patient's risk is to calculate their risk of having an event like a heart attack or a stroke in the next 10 years using a validated risk calculator. So we've linked to this calculator in the show notes. You can play around with it yourself. But essentially, what you do is you put in different risk factors. So things like age, sex, race, blood pressure, smoking, diabetes, whether or not the patient is on medication for blood pressure or high cholesterol. And then the calculator spits out a percentage. And that percentage is the patient's theoretical risk of having a heart attack or a stroke or another cardiovascular event within the next 10 years. And based on that percentage, we can really stratify patients into four groups. So if the percentage is 5% or less, those patients are considered low risk. And in general, statins are not recommended in this group. If their percentage is 5% to 7.5%, in general, again, statins are not recommended unless there's other risk enhancers present. And we're going to get into those here in just a minute. Now, if the percentage is 7.5% to 20%, in general, a statin is recommended, especially if other risk enhancers are present. And then in our higher risk patients, so those are patients with a greater than 20% 10-year risk, in general, starting a statin is favored. 
So one of the limitations of this 10-year ASCVD risk calculator, as it's called, is that it weighs age very, very heavily. And we're going to play this out in an example. So we have two individuals who have a theoretical 20% risk of a stroke or heart attack over the next 10 years. Person one has perfect blood pressure, perfect cholesterol, doesn't smoke, exercises every day, eats well, but happens to be 75 years old. It's what we aspire to be like when we're 75. (laughs) Person two, on the other hand, is 50 years old, has a history of smoking, and is on medication for high blood pressure, doesn't exercise, and has prediabetes. Now, both of these individuals have a 20% theoretical risk of a stroke or heart attack over the next 10 years. So it's obvious that these are two very different situations, and it highlights why an individual risk discussion is so, so important. Right. So this risk calculator just doesn't take into consideration the lifestyle factors that a person is already implementing. And so as you can see, even though you know 20% risk, maybe a statin is indicated, that might be not the best scenario for a patient depending on what's going on outside of this calculator. So just to emphasize again, regardless of which of these four risk categories the patient falls into after doing the risk calculator, if they're low, borderline, intermediate, or high, the decision to start a statin should be made only after the patient is given time to implement lifestyle changes if that's what they desire. And then also a discussion is had between the patient and their doctor about their risks and benefits. So we've talked about the 10-year risk calculator. Next, let's talk about risk enhancers. And these are particularly useful in individuals who fall into that borderline or intermediate risk category. So these risk enhancers include a family history of premature cardiovascular disease, and that would be a first-degree relative, parents, siblings, um, and the age cutoff for this would be less than 55 years uh, old for males and less than 65 years old for females, persistently elevated LDL and triglycerides, chronic kidney disease, metabolic syndrome, other inflammatory conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis will play into the discussion or or part of risk enhancers. Ethnicity plays a role. More advanced biomarkers, if they're tested by your physician, will also be considered. Things like lipoprotein A, ApoB, high-sensitivity CRP. Now, after taking all these risk enhancers into consideration, Mm -hmm. in addition to the 10-year ASCVD risk score or your risk of having a stroke or heart attack over the next 10 years, if you're still sitting on the fence, you can use something called a coronary artery calcium score, where you take a CT scan of the chest, you look for calcium deposition in the coronary arteries, the arteries that supply the heart. If there's no calcium present, it may put the patient in a lower risk category and potentially sway the conversation away from a statin. If it's if calcium is present on that CT scan, potentially it'll sway the conversation towards starting a statin. If after all of this decision is made to start a statin, the goal should be to reduce your LDL by a certain percentage depending on your initial 10-year risk of a stroke or a heart attack. Wow. That was a lot. (laughs) So as we said, the 40 to 75 age group is where the bulk of these discussions happen. And there is a lot to consider. So as you can see, it's not just as easy as your doctor telling you your cholesterol is high and you should start a statin. There's a lot more that needs to be taken into consideration and discussed. You can come to the right decision together. All right. So our last age group is those greater than 75. What do the guidelines have to say about these patients? So yeah, although the calculator is fantastic, it's not validated in folks who are over 75. And we should also note that as people age, they're more susceptible to statin-related side effects. So in this situation, the guidelines say to have a discussion. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that was our quick whirlwind review of the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, or AHA ACC guidelines, which again are the most widely used and referenced. But we are both family physicians. So we often look to our own professional organization, the American Academy of Family Physicians, or AFP, for some guidance. And we love family medicine because it generally tries to take 
the whole person into consideration and really look at the big picture. So the AFP put out a statement of endorsement for these AHA ACC guidelines. What did they have to say about them? So they basically said that the guidelines are valuable. There are things in there that we can use to have that conversation, but they didn't meet the criteria for full endorsement. And the reason was really a lot of the data was low quality and there was insufficient evidence for some of the recommendations made. So again, this is an endorsement that highlights the fact that there's um, good data uh, or decent data to inform decisions, but it's not the perfect data that we're looking for. Exactly. All right. So now let's look to another body for recommendations about using statins for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. And that's the United States Preventive Services Task Force or USPSTF. So in general, the USPSTF's recommendations are all graded on an A, B, C, D, or I scale, depending on the strength of the evidence behind the recommendation. So in general, A and B grade recommendations are things that have good evidence and should be offered in practice. C recommendations are things that should be offered for select patients, depending on the situation. D grades should actually be discouraged because there's some evidence for harm. And then I recommendations mean that there, are in, there is insufficient evidence to really assess. So the USPSTF makes three recommendations about statins for primary prevention. The first two recommendations focus on individuals who are age 4 to 75 with one or more cardiovascular disease risk factors, things like high cholesterol, diabetes, hypertension, or smoking. So if the 10-year risk of a cardiovascular event is greater than 10%, they would recommend using a statin for the prevention of cardiovascular disease events and mortality. Now, this is a B recommendation, meaning that it should be offered. If the calculated risk in these individuals is 7.5 to 10%, clinicians may choose to offer a statin, but recognizing that the benefit is likely to be smaller than in those higher risk individuals who have a 10-year CVD risk score of greater than 10%. And they classify this as a C recommendation, meaning that it should be offered to select individuals. And then finally, the third recommendation that they make is that the evidence that we have right now is insufficient to assess the balance of benefits and harms of starting statins for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease events and mortality in adults 76 years of age or older. So that's an I recommendation, again, insufficient evidence to assess. And again, this is very similar to what we heard from the AHA ACC guidelines, where in these older individuals, we just don't have the data. Um, so it comes down to a discussion. Now, although the USPSTF is generally considered to be a less less biased body, as Danny mentioned earlier, even these guidelines have been questioned. And this is because some of the studies used in their review included patients who already had clinical signs of cardiovascular disease. So again, those patients would be considered secondary prevention. And by including them in some of these studies and analysis, it sort of muddies the water about what the data are telling us. Also, most of the trials that were used in this review were industry-sponsored, and that makes it difficult because the reviewers were not able to access the primary data from the research. Okay, so they had to rely on peer-reviewed published reports instead of getting their hands on that data themselves, which has some limitations. And we know also that industry trials report greater benefit and less side effects in general than non-industry-sponsored trials. All right, so we've talked about the thought process uh, used to assess cardiovascular risk as it relates to cholesterol. Now let's talk about the benefits and risks of statin medications, which should be included in the discussion between the patient and the physician. So the research used to assess these potential benefits of statins is plagued by some of the same issues with research that Julie just mentioned. Regardless, we're going to work with the data we have as it relates to the benefits of statins. All right. It's important to note that taking a statin medication is not guaranteed to prevent a heart attack or stroke in every person. 
but there is potential to benefit. First, we'll review the potential benefits for our lower-risk individuals with a calculated 10-year risk of less than 20%. In this group, 1 in 217 people avoid a non-fatal heart attack, 1 in 313 people avoid a non-fatal stroke, and there is no statistically significant mortality benefit in this group. When we look at individuals in the high-risk group with a calculated 10-year risk of equal to or greater than 20%, evidence suggests that statins may reduce mortality in addition to heart attacks and strokes, although the mortality benefit is debated. All right. So those are the potential benefits. Now let's talk about some of the potential harms of statin medications. So one of the most commonly reported side effects from statins is muscle pain. One to four of every 21 people treated with statin medications may experience pain from muscle damage. So that's about five to 20% of people. There are problems with this data as well because it's not routinely collected in these trials. But what we do know is that the chances of severe muscle damage are much more rare, um, but they are still there. So if patients develop muscle pain on a statin, they can often tolerate a different statin, so switching to a different medication or starting at a lower dose and working their way up or using a different dosing regimen of the statin, and then that muscle pain tends to go away. Now, the supplement CoQ10 is also thought to be helpful by some in reducing the muscle side effects of statins. This hasn't been proven out in all studies, but the rationale behind it is that HMG-CoA reductase enzyme that we talked about earlier Statins inhibit that enzyme, but it turns out that enzyme is also important for the production of CoQ10. And CoQ10 is an important antioxidant. It's also important for energy production. It's highly concentrated in our mitochondria. And statins have been shown to reduce the blood levels of CoQ10 up to 50% as well. There's also a concern about liver damage from statins. And it turns out this is not very clinically significant. So at times, statins can cause elevation in liver enzymes, so things like AST or ALT that you may have heard of. It tends to be transient, and it tends to sort of resolve on its own. And true liver failure from these medications is very, very rare. We also know that one in every 204 patients treated with a statin will go on to develop diabetes. Now, it's kind of counterintuitive because you think, you know, diabetes, high cholesterol, these are all just... Um, different ways of looking at a metabolic syndrome picture. So if you have a statin that should improve it, you know, why are we getting more people that are getting diabetes? And we're not 100% sure, but we think that being on the statin medication maybe accelerates the development of diabetes in susceptible individuals. So that's something to keep into consideration as well. There's also some evidence that statins blunt the adaptations to exercise training. And there's some controversy around the association between statins and reversible cognitive impairment. So things like memory loss or quote unquote brain fog, which is a very nonspecific term. But the FDA does require this to be listed on the label. So it's something that we should be talking about as well. Now, these are smaller things, but everyone who is taking the statin would have to remember to take their pill every day. And then the patient or their health plan would have to pay for that medication as well. So these are the risks and the benefits that should be weighed by each patient with their physician in the context of their own personal risk factors prior to initiating a statin for primary prevention. All right, before we wrap up, I don't think any discussion would be complete <laughs> without talking about lifestyle factors um, as really a first-line treatment to a lot of things we talked about previously. So the beauty of these lifestyle interventions is they have no known side effects and they have benefits far reaching way beyond just cholesterol itself. So we'll start with diet, of course. 
Um, the Mediterranean diet is one of the most widely studied diets, and especially when it comes to cardiovascular disease prevention. So in a randomized controlled trial, the Mediterranean diet showed a 30% relative reduction in risk of cardiovascular events um, compared to a control low-fat diet. So that's something that we know to have an impact in preventing cardiovascular disease as well. Physical activity can also have a huge impact. So going from being physically inactive to achieving the recommended 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity per week was associated with a 23% lower risk of mortality from cardiovascular disease, a 17% lower incidence of cardiovascular disease itself, and then a 26% lower incidence of type 2 diabetes. So here we're seeing everything go in the same direction where if you exercise, hopefully it should prevent all of these conditions. So next we'll talk about smoking. I think most people know that smoking is not good for your cardiovascular health. I hope health. so by now. <laughs> <laughs> but the, here's what the data says. There's a relative risk reduction of cardiovascular disease of 39% if you stop smoking. So very powerful stuff. There are other things to consider too that maybe we don't talk about all too often. That's social isolation, perceived loneliness, living alone, low socioeconomic status. All these things account for a 26 to 32% increase um, risk of mortality. And they're important lifestyle factors that I think should be um, discussed in any discussion when it comes to chronic conditions like high cholesterol, even high blood pressure and the like. Absolutely. And just a plug to put in, if you didn't listen to last week's podcast with Dr. George Slavich from the UCLA Stress Lab, he goes into great detail on his research in this area. And it's really amazing to see how powerful some of these factors like loneliness and socioeconomic status um, can really affect our susceptibility to chronic disease. So Guys, we've covered a whole lot of ground. <laughs> As a reminder, this discussion was pertaining only to primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, meaning only people who have not already had a heart attack, stroke, peripheral artery disease, or anything along those lines. Lifestyle modifications are always first line. And as we just discussed, they can have a huge impact on lowering our cardiovascular disease risk. In most situations, it comes down to a discussion between the patient and their physician about the risks and benefits of starting a statin medication in the context of their own unique risk factors. Now, we've laid out some of the general potential benefits and harms of statin medications for you here that should be considered when having those discussions. Again, all this information, including our citations, including those guidelines that we referred to, including the flowchart diagram, that 10-year risk calculator are all included in the show notes over on pursuing-health.com. So we encourage you to head over there to play around with those yourself. Now, we do want to note that in reality, not all primary care doctors are routinely going to be having discussions that are this in-depth with their patients. And there are a few reasons why we think that happens. Probably one of the biggest reasons is lack of time. So, you know, we have these guidelines for cholesterol, but we also have guidelines for a million other things, for lowering blood pressure, <laughs> for screening tests, for, you know, cancer prevention. And most patients are seeing their doctor for 20 minutes once or twice per year. And so this is just one thing that has to be discussed in that 20-minute visit, you know, let alone checking in on chronic health problems, discussing other prevention topics like cancer screening or immunizations, or any acute concerns or symptoms that the patient brings up at that visit. So as you can probably tell, these cardiovascular risk discussions could fill up 20 minutes on their own. I mean, we've already been Easily, talking here yeah. for more than 30 minutes. So if this is something you want to discuss in more detail with your doctor, we'd recommend scheduling a dedicated visit just to talk about this and nothing else. Mm -hmm. A second reason 
that these discussions probably aren't had enough is the lack of exposure and education regarding lifestyle change for most physicians. So most doctors have not had any formal instruction in lifestyle change, including nutrition, exercise, sleep, or stress management. And so they may be less likely to want to try those things first and more likely to prescribe a statin, which is something they're more familiar with prescribing medications. So knowing this, lifestyle change might be something you have to seek out on your own and bring to this discussion with your doctor. But the key is really finding a doctor who you can have these candid discussions with about your risk, carving out the time to do so, and then coming to the best plan of action together. All right. So that's all we've got for you guys today. We hope you found this information to be helpful and we'll catch you next time here on Pursuing Health Pearls. Bye, everyone. We hope you learned something from this episode and that you'll consider becoming a Pursuing Health subscriber for less than the price of a latte every month to support the podcast. Given our role as family physicians, Danny and I feel very strongly about our responsibility to remain as unbiased as possible in order to foster trust with you, our listeners, our larger community, and our patients. Therefore, we've made the commitment not to accept any sponsorship or endorsement compensation from industry. Now, because we don't have sponsors, it's only with your support that we can continue to produce and improve the quality of the podcast from this point forward. It's our intention that by subscribing, you'll get back far more value than you give. Subscribers all gain access to exclusive discount codes from companies we trust and use ourselves. This allows us to share quality products and services with our community and pass on the value of our endorsement to you without you having to wonder whether we are getting compensated behind the scenes. Subscribers also have access to our Ask Us Anything forum and podcast where Danny and I answer your questions, as well as our morning five sessions, five minutes of movements programmed to help you jumpstart your day, and our other training programs depending on the level at which you subscribe. Our goal is for you to get back far more than you give with these benefits, and we only intend to increase the benefits to subscribers as time goes on. Visit pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to learn more and subscribe yourself. Again, that's pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you again so much for listening and we'll catch you next time on Pursuing Health.